I've been reading Arthur Brooks' new book called Love Your Enemies. I have a lot of thoughts that come from that. I also was introduced this week to several questions and suggestions on how to make our elections better. We'll do that and a lot more on today's Corey Truax Show. This is the best thing, the best thing that could be happening. And I think you would agree the best thing is that it's happening to you and me. Motive, attribution, asymmetry. Over the next 10 minutes or so, you're going to find out what that means and it actually means a lot. It's very important to understand motive attribution asymmetry. It comes from Arthur Brooks' new book. We're going to talk about that and a lot more in just a moment. Some other things that we want to do on the show today, I have those ideas regarding elections that I had some friends share with me. We started talking through the ways in which our elections might be a little backwards and how to make them better. There's a very funny or disturbing, I don't know which one you're going to call it, study on what millennials are stressed out about because millennials get this that's my age group i'm the oldest of them I'll, I'll be 33 tomorrow if you're listening to this live on march 30th uh that's 2019 on christian talk 660 uh, so i'm the oldest of the millennials i'll be 33 tomorrow me and a, everyone about 15 years younger than i am every we, we say we say when we're polled that this is the most stressful time ever to be alive and that's absurd we're going to talk about that uh, and what stresses millennials out. Also, uh, a guy I generally respect, uh, Tabidi Anabuele, I believe is how he says his name, uh, has some weird thoughts about reparations for slavery. This is a pastor uh, that I would I want to try to address some of his thinking. Uh, and then, uh, what was it? Yeah, another one was the Mueller report has been filed, and so I have some thoughts from that. And maybe uh, some more, plus we'll do sports with Heath. So a lot to do on the show today. We're going to dive in here in just a moment. But first, my name is Corey Truax. We are dedicated to smarter, better, deeper talk about everything here on the Corey Truax Show. I'm also the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church. Beachwood Church meets at 1030 on Sunday mornings in our building now on 123. Coming out of Easley into Greenville, we would love to see you there at 1030 Sunday morning for Beachwood Church. Now, here we go. Arthur Brooks has a new book out. I'm not finished with it yet. It's called Love Your Enemies. And he put out in the New York Times, I would call it a companion uh, opinion editorial, not an op-ed there in the New York Times that basically outlines the book. If you're not familiar with Arthur Brooks, you should be. He has been head of the Free Enterprise Institute or the American Enterprise Institute for about 20 years now. A really interesting guy that I would encourage you to go read his book or at least get a summary of it, listen to some of the interviews with him. Uh, really had a very interesting life. This guy was traveling in Spain as an with an orchestra. He met his wife there. Comes back to D.C. and gets into politics of all things. And he's just a really interesting thinker about free markets, free enterprise, and individualism. They're one of the most prominent think tanks and influential organizations in Washington D.C. And so he has this new book out that I've been working through. I just want to give you some of the thoughts that. Uh, that he has and some of my responses to them. Here's his primary premise. Our politics are broken. I feel like that's not controversial at all to say. Of course, we don't talk to each other well. Of course, through the advent of social media, probably did make it a little worse, but also just revealed the fact that a lot of us don't like each other, that there is there's some bitterness in the culture towards people who aren't like you. This is our unfortunate standard operating procedure to dislike and distrust the other person who has a different idea, comes from a different place. So he goes through a study 
I can't remember who uh, in the book, uh, where, where it was from. Oh, I found it. Yeah, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Here's what they found. That there is a motive attribution asymmetry. Now, you're all smart enough. You listen to this show. You could break that term down and figure it out. Motive attribution. So the motive that you attribute to someone else. Someone does a certain thing, they say a certain word, they have a certain idea, and then you apply a motive to them. This might happen in your household through marriage. A spouse does one thing, and you assume you know their motive in what it is. This happens in friendship and at work. Maybe you see at work someone doing a certain thing, and you attribute their motive to brown-nosing the boss. They're just trying to get brownie points. You assume the motive of someone else. You attribute the motive... And what the National Academy of Sciences found is that in the United States, there's a motive attribution asymmetry. So the, there's not symmetry, there's not a, a, co, a coincidence, a coinciding of the motive we feel about ourselves and the motive we feel about someone else. This has been so much so that the study found that the asymmetry between self-identified American Republicans and self-identified American conservatives is that the difference between those two is as different as the Palestinian-Israeli conflict and how they think about one another. To say this really clearly, here's what this means. That for the, the Palestinian, they assume their motives for what they believe and what they want, it's driven by benevolence, it's driven by love. And they assume the Israelis, that their motives for what they want, it is driven by selfishness and hatred. And then here in America, Republicans look at Democrats and they assume their motive. Your motive is evil. Your motive is hatred for something. And you can see that from the left towards the right, Democrats toward Republicans. They just assume whatever policy you want, whatever thing you say, whatever idea you have, we assume our motives are good, benevolent, and loving, and your motives are evil. And so we have this poisonous, acrimonious politics because we assume the worst of each other. I'll give you one quick example of this is in the gun debate. The assumption many Republicans have and I'm not saying that there is no reason to assume it, but the assumption immediately in a conversation with someone on guns who says anything we don't like, we assume your motive is to take away our freedom, to take away our guns because you want the government to be all-powerful, which, of course, takes too many steps. It assumes too much. And the folks on the left, their assumption to those on the right when it comes to guns is you just don't care about people. You don't care about death. You don't care about lives lost. You don't care about... The, the sadness that comes along with it. And of course, that's not true either. You know what would be better for both of them and how we actually have a better politics is you assume, well, the folks on the left, what they really want is they just want people safe. And the folks on the left look at the right and say, I assume you also want people to be safe. And then you can try to work towards the idea of, well, how does that happen? Does it happen through the confiscation of guns? Does it happen through more guns? Does it happen through more regulation? Does it happen through what New Zealand is trying to do now? Is it what Australia did with its, with its buyback? Or what, what is the, what's the idea that's going to get us to safety? So when we assume the better motive of the person across from us, then you can actually maybe accomplish something. So what he writes here is that our problem in the American politic, the American culture, it's not incivility, it's not intolerance. It's not that we're not being civil to each other, although we're not. 
and we're, it's not that we're being intolerant all of each other, even though we're not tolerant. The core problem is actually contempt. We feel contempt for each other. One of the definitions he gives in the book is from a prominent sociologist that contempt is this conviction about the evilness or the worthlessness of the other. And when you assume, this person who doesn't think like me, they are evil, they are worthless, well then you will be uncivil and you will have no tolerance, but that's, that's because you have contempt for them. And you can hear this in the American culture. A lot of the folks that voted for Bernie Sanders and for Donald Trump, the two more populist candidates in the last election, you heard that word sometimes. I know I did in conversations. That they felt like the powerful people and the people in the big cities and the people with the college degrees, that they looked out on small-town America and they looked out on middle-class America and there was contempt for small-town America and middle America. And then so in return, middle America looked back at the big cities and looked at all the, at the academy and looked at academia and they had contempt right back for them. Just this utter conviction that you and your thoughts are worthless and then they looked back at the other side and said, you and your thoughts are worthless too. And so when you have this, these feelings of contempt, this person who disagrees with me is either evil or worthless. There is not a way to make any progress or have any kind of compromise. It's literally impossible. When you think the person across from you is evil or worthless, where do you start? This has been, going back to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, this has been one of my themes discussing that for literally decades now in my life. When the starting point for one side, at least for a while, was, we think all of you should die. Well, what do you go to the table with? What's the compromise? Well, we think only 25% of us should die. Can you take 25%? When you have contempt for the other side, there's no way to make progress. There's no way to come to any kind of solution. And before we get to the politics of it, you should apply this to your own life. You should apply this to familial conflict. You should, uh, you should apply this to conflict with your kids, with your spouse, even in your church. If one side feels contempt for the other, there's literally no way to get past that. You actually have to tackle the contempt first. And you tackle the contempt first by recognizing, do you know my motives are good? Even if I did the wrong thing, do you know I didn't want to? you know my intention wasn't to hurt you? you know my intention was pure even if I messed up so badly? You know, some of the worst personal arguments I've ever been in is when I have felt that from someone else. That I felt like their assumption of me is that I was trying to do the wrong thing. That my goal was to be destructive. Guys, I've made all kinds of mistakes. We never want to. Very few of us want to. We're not trying to hurt the other. And so before you can actually get to compromise, before you can get to progress in politics or in your personal life, you have to deal with the contempt and the assumption you make of another person's motives. And so that leads to solutions. If that's the problem, if contempt is the problem and it leads to our incivility and our intolerance for one another, we still need disagreement. Disagreement is good. It's how we figure out which ideas are best. Then how do we get to better disagreement that's not so full of contempt? Here's three things and we will call it a day. Number one is recognize that you are being used. You are being preyed upon in what is an industry of contempt. Tommy Lahren, Sean Hannity on the right, Rachel Maddow, Chris Matthews on the left. There's an industry of contempt. 
You like being told the other side is stupid and they're wrong and their motives are terrible and they're evil. You like hearing that. And you know what broadcasters will do? They'll feed it to you because they love that you like it. But that's not leadership. That's not intellectually honest. You need to recognize there's an entire industry, literally, I just I do mean very cynically here, just for the money. They they love to feed you what you want. You want contempt for the Republicans of MSC, MSNBC will feed it to you. You want contempt for the president. CNN will feed it to you. Just keep watching. You want contempt for Democrats. You want contempt for Nancy Pelosi. Rush Limbaugh is happy to feed that to you. But that's not what leadership is. That's not what we need. So recognize that. You're being used in that business plan. What I, what I endeavor to do is to teach. What I endeavor to do is to lead. What I endeavor to do is that every time you walk away from this show, you know more than you previously did. You were, your thoughts were challenged more than they were previously challenged because that is leadership, and that's what we need. We don't need someone feeding us information to build on our contempt, to release those, those, th- those chemicals in our brain that make us feel so righteous and so good about our side and how bad the other side is. That's number one. Recognize you're being used as a tool, and don't let it happen. Don't let yourself be used in that industrial complex that is getting people all riled up in their emotions. Number two, don't treat people with contempt. Recognize this. Are you, are you in the process of, of politics for, for a win, or are you just trying to make yourself feel good about yourself? You just want to have a virtue signal that you're doing the right thing. Because if you actually want to change someone's mind, I will tell you this, no one has been hated into changing their mind. They never felt so hated that they were like, I got to change my mind because this person hates me. No one's ever done that. So even when we are tempted, even when I am tempted, because I am guilty of this, treating people with contempt over their views, I know I'm guilty of it. And I want to stop. I want to do better. I want to be more effective. And I want to do the right thing. And the right thing is to not treat people with contempt. So it is the right thing. It's also the more effective thing because no one has ever been hated into changing his or her mind. So recognize you're being used in an industrial complex of resentment and contempt. Don't treat people with resentment and contempt. Even assume the best motive of your, quote, enemy. Assume the best motive of the person who disagrees with you. And finally, when you are treated with contempt, respond with love. You don't need Arthur Brooks to write a book on this. Jesus said the same thing. Gandhi said a lot of the same stuff. If you're interested in just other philosophers, coming from a Christian perspective on this show, it matters that Jesus would say, when that Roman soldier wants you to carry carry his, carry his stuff a mile, carry it too. Turn the other cheek. Love your enemies. Paul would write about this. Oh, when you do that, it's like heaping hot coals on their head. Jesus prayed about it. People will know your mind because of the unity among you. Final thought here is you, like me, you will be treated with contempt in your life. It's going to happen by family. It's going to happen by someone you love. It's going to happen on the internet. It's going to happen. You have an option. You had really no control over how you were treated, but you have all the control in the world over how you respond. And when you are treated with contempt, respond with love. We'll come back 
and do some more hard news, and a lo- there's a lot of it to do on this week's edition of the Corey Act Show. Stick with us. Welcome back into the Gory Act Show. Glad to have you here. If you have not been paying attention to the news, something you might have missed is this. There's Elizabeth Warren out there. There's several other Democratic candidates kicking around the idea of eliminating the Electoral College, the way in which we have elected presidents for, what is that, 230-some-odd years, 240 years of our history. Uh, this, this compromise that we came up with in 1787 in Philadelphia during the Constitutional Convention not to have a straight popular vote, as the founders found, as Plato found, as Aristotle found. Uh, that, that's the worst kind of government. The worst of government is the one where the majority of people can impose their will upon the minority of people without any kind of protection for the minority. So direct democracy has been found, uh, it's been weighed, it's been measured, and it was found wanting. It was not an effective State, it was not a, uh, an effective state of governance. And so the American system, this constitution that we've been living under, the longest governing document in human history, you know, France is now on its, I think it's eighth constitution. Uh, recently, Finland decided to get a new constitution. They asked for citizen input through Twitter. If you want to just try to talk about the constitution of Finland on Twitter, just, you know, tweet the government. This is the longest lasting governing document in human history. There's obviously something right with it. And one of those things that was right was the idea of uh, of separating powers and spreading out power and allowing there to be protection for the, uh, the, the, the folks who lost an election, for the minority ideology, for the minority party, so that there cannot be a, a straight majority rule and someone uh, be violated in that way. And so this... This idea of the Electoral College, that's what it was meant for. That's what it's been used for for 240-some-odd years. But I'm not married to it. I'm okay with the idea of uh, of, of doing something different. Uh, I, I, can't, I can't stand in business, in friendship, in organizations when the answer for why we do something is, well, we always have. That's why we do it in our business. That's why we do this in our organization, in our church, in our family. We've just always done it that way without the introspection without the retrospection and the circumspection of stopping and saying, well, maybe the way we've done it is dumb. Maybe we should rethink it. Maybe there's a new way that's come along. And so that could be a lesson for all of life, but certainly in government, I'm fine with the idea of, of let's, let's rethink the Electoral College. We have 330 million, I think it is now, Americans. We came up with the Electoral College when we had 13 colonial states, and we really didn't do a good job of counting ourselves back then. We don't really know how many there were, but there wasn't 330 million. It was a small group of folks, and so if you want to start rethinking how we elect presidents, I'm in. I mean, let's talk about it. Let's be careful about it. And so, as that's been a a proposal put forth by several Democratic candidates, I put out on Twitter, I put out on Facebook the idea of, well, if we did do elections differently... What are the ways in which we might do it? And I even heard from some students, because I'm around college students a good bit, uh, one of the little complaints they had about how we might do elections differently. So I just wanted to give you some of the ideas that I've been hearing from others. Uh, And then if you have feedback, you can reach the show on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, any of those, or you can uh, email the show at CoreyTruackShow at gmail.com, CoreyTruackShow at gmail.com, on the ways in which you think elections and voting in the United States might improve. So here's one that the kids out there, the millennials, the Gen Z folks, sent to me a couple times. They don't like that we vote on Tuesday. 
that's apparently offensive to them because, you know, they have jobs in school, and Tuesday was, uh, it seems like a stupid day to vote when we vote for president. So a quick little history lesson for you. You can now impress somebody at a cocktail party when you tell them this useless piece of information that I'm about to share with you. The reason we chose Tuesday for national elections was thus. Back then, when we set that system up, most people were agrarian, and we sold our goods that we, so- that we made at the house, we grew in the field, we sold it in the marketplace. We were also a super religious people. And so the idea was, well, we can't travel on Sunday. No American would travel on Sunday. And so, because, you know, it's the Sabbath. Because that's an anti-Sabbath thing to do. We can't travel. And to vote, we have to go to a city. And so because we're agrarian and because we're rural, we can't just have, like we have, voting precincts everywhere. We're actually going to need all of the folks in the countryside to go to Philadelphia, to go to Boston, to go to New York, to go to Richmond. You're going to need to vote in the city. And so you can't travel on Sunday because we all love Jesus too much. And then number two, you have to take Monday to travel. You can vote on Tuesday first thing and get home because Wednesday was called market day in most places. That's when you actually would go to the market and trade whatever thing you grew for whatever animals they slaughtered. And so that's why we chose Tuesday. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know any farmers. Maybe I possibly, if I searched my Facebook friends, I'd find a farmer. I don't think I know any. And we're still running elections based on an economy that doesn't exist anymore and with priorities that don't exist anymore. And so I also find Tuesday, yeah, that's dumb. That's a dumb day to vote. Uh, So one idea I heard was let's switch the day we vote. I'm good for Saturday. I wouldn't even mind making it a weekend, a Saturday-Sunday thing. Show up one or the other. Specifically, as both sides seem to say, they want more, quote, working-class people to be voting. Okay, well, working-class people have jobs. Jobs often meet on Tuesdays. That's the middle of the week, guys. So yes, I thought that was a good idea from the young folks. They said they want to vote on the weekends. That's great. Uh, number two, I had, uh, I, I'm had. using a hybrid of my own idea and someone else's. There's a dark history in the United States in regarding tests uh, for to vote. Uh, it was used throughout the South, disenfranchised African-American voters after the uh, after after uh, Jim Crow laws like this was a thing people did to keep groups from voting. My heart in the idea of a test is really just only this: there are uh, a lot of people who don't know things and they vote. I mean, I was thinking of Nancy Pelosi here recently, who said, "Let's lower it to 16. Let's lower the voting age to 16." Well, my thought was, 16-year-olds, most of them just don't know enough. But if honestly, if I took a 16-year-old and I took some 55-year-old guy I know and I asked the two of them, what are the three branches of government? I don't know. I don't know which one of them if either gets it right. If I said, can you tell me what the Fifth Amendment means? You don't have to quote it. What's it mean that you don't have to? And if they can just say that you don't have to self-incriminate, like I might be in. Do you just know, just, just just testing, do you know one of your senator's names? Just one. Can you give me one? If you're in South Carolina and if you can't say Lindsey Graham or Tim Scott, just bottom line, I don't know. I don't know if you should vote. I don't, I don't think you're ready. I don't think you've thought about, enough about government and civics. I don't know if you paid attention. I don't even want a test that's about philosophical things or about uh, current events necessarily because there can be a spin on that. Just straight factual stuff. Like, how many members of the House of Representatives are there? 
And I don't know if you have to get 435 directly, but if you can't get between 400 and 500, I don't know, man. Maybe you should sit this one out. And so that was, I've had this idea for a while of just general civics. If you don't know what's going on, don't vote. I'm not even thinking I want to ban people. I'm just asking people to be adults, to look at the responsibility of voting and go, you know, I just haven't paid attention. I'm just going to sit this one out. I do that when I'm looking at a ballot and there's a there's one for like a judge in Pickens County and I have not thought about it one bit. I don't know either name. I just go, yeah, I'm not going to. I'm not going to vote on this. I just skip it and leave it blank. Then someone came up with a, I think, even more brilliant system related to my own. And it was this, that every American who qualifies right now, so that's just basically everyone 18 years old and above, that you get 100 votes, but then you take a 10-question test. And then you get, the, you get the votes, you get to use as many votes as you scored on the test. So if you scored 5 out of 10 on the test, you get 50 votes. You get 50% of your votes because you got 50% of the questions right. And so now we are judging people only by, do you know what's going on? I actually love this hybrid idea. I'd love to institute something like that. I'm sure we never will. I had another person send me this one. I don't like it. I'm about to tell you the idea, not because I support it. And even though I don't like the idea, I can't promise you I won't laugh a little because it's a little funny, but I'm not trying to be mean in that laughter. I had one person. He's a libertarian. Libertarian, I wouldn't call him a friend, uh, but we sort of know each other. He sends me the, this idea. Older people get to vote on policies and politicians that won't affect them as long. So let's just take someone in, let's go uh, mid-70s. They're, if they have the opportunity to vote for a politician in regards to a pension program or something, or a, regards to any program that's going to incur even more debt than we previously have, uh, you, you, can, you can surmise the consequence of that. That's going to affect me and the generation behind me and the generation behind them. What do they care? That's not going to affect them in that short term. And really, at that age, the short term is the only one that matters. And so they, their thought was, once you get to a certain age in relation to the life expectancy, you start losing some votes. So like, again, like maybe you start with 10 votes. But as you get, get to a certain age, you start losing some votes. I'm not for it. Uh, we, love our, we love our seasoned citizens. That's now what you're supposed to call older folks. They're seasoned citizens. And I'm not for that idea either. One last idea I got. And this is, I think, the most reasonable and the one that would cause the least compunction. Uh, like, it's not radical. This is just a, a little tweak to the system that might make it a little better. So it seems like the problem with folks on the left that don't like the Electoral College is that, for example, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by 3 million people, but she's not president. Uh, who else did this? Uh, was it? Uh, no, it's Bill. No, no, it was Al Gore. Al Gore had more votes by a few nationally than George W. Bush in 2000, but he was not president. And so it seems to be the less problem is we 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 just we have people whose votes kind of don't count because too many Democrats and liberals voted in California, and because uh, their national votes don't count, like all those people in California and New York, their votes really just don't count because those were always going to be blue states. And then you could do it the other way. All those Democrats that voted in Texas, it just doesn't matter because Texas 
they're always going to go to the Republican, and so their vote doesn't count in some way. That seems to be the criticism out there on the right. I don't know that there has been a criticism of the, the Electoral College. They seem to find it as a bulwark against large cities dominating the elections. I could sort of see the point, um, but their their point there being there's enough population in New York City, L.A., Chicago, Miami, Houston. There's one other city I'm thinking of here that are all very Democratic cities. Because even though Houston's in Texas, it's a very, very Democratic city. Oh, yeah, D.C. That if you put all those together, you've almost won a national election. Like, you, you only need those cities. And so what about the folks out in Des Moines, Iowa, and Casper, Wyoming? I think that's a city in that state. I'm trying to think of other small towns. Dubuque, I don't know what state that's in, but, you know, the folks in the small town America, their votes don't count as much. That seems to be the Republican concern. So here is this new hybrid, interesting idea I had sent to me. There's still a winner-take-all. You know what's going to be easier? If I give you an exact example. So we'll go with South Carolina. South Carolina has nine electoral college votes. You get electoral college votes by how many senators do you have, how many House of Representative rep- reps do you have, and you add that up. So we have two senators. Every state has two senators. And we have seven House reps. So we get nine votes in South Carolina. This person's idea was, if you win the state, you get the two votes from the senators. But then it breaks down by congressional, uh, congressional district. So in South Carolina, there are two blue districts, two Democratic districts, one in Columbia, now one in Charleston. And so instead of uh, Donald Trump getting all of nine of South Carolina's votes, he would have gotten seven of the nine because two would have gone over to, uh, to Hillary for the, uh, for the Columbia area and Charleston area. So it's a unique way to do this in a less abrasive way to change that system. If you have other ideas, again, I'd love to hear them. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com for the things that you see that are backwards or about our elections that you'd like to see change. Last thought for me on this is I'm generally okay with the general election system. Of course, it could be better, uh, and some other countries, I think, have a better system. But it's fine enough. I'm satisfied enough with how we vote every four years in November. But the problem we should all have with our system is the primaries. This is the backward notion that we have crowned Iowa with their caucus system as a way to be a king or queen maker early in the process. And the New Hampshire always goes second. And listen, I benefit from it because it's in South Carolina, but South Carolina is the first in the South primary. It's the third state overall to vote. We get all kinds of attention here. I mean, every year we get a debate from Republicans and Democrats, one in Greenville, one in Myrtle Beach, one in Charleston, and usually one in Columbia. Why on earth do we get that attention? No other reason, but we have this primary system that concentrates on these early states. And why these three? Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina. I'm sure Iowa, the folks of Iowa are fine. I'm sure the folks in New Hampshire are great folks. And you know us here in South Carolina, we're great. But why on earth did we focus on these three states? And we have these, we have these systems that are dominated by these two parties where we can't have third-party candidates or independents ever mean anything. That's the thing that needs reform. The thing I would love to see for the primary system is this. One of two. 
one is uh, voting where you uh, we have rounds, almost like this March Madness tournament that's going on, where we show up, everybody in the country show up, vote in the primary you want to vote in, you vote in the Republican one or the Democratic one, that's fine. And anyone who doesn't get 5% of the vote, you're out. And six weeks later, we all come back and we do it again. And then from there, anyone who doesn't get like 25% of the vote, you're out. Let's do it again. And we vote again six weeks later. And we vote again six weeks later. It's almost like The Voice or, I don't know, American Idol. But we, we're and consider this. Those reality shows and talent shows, they have a more rational system for choosing a winner than the parties do. You know what American Idol doesn't do? They don't ask the people in Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina. They ask a bunch of other places. And so I would love to see it done in rounds or just regionally where one week we're doing the northwest the next week it's all the all the states in the in the southwest and then the next week it's the central part of the country maybe five or six rounds and maybe the southeast ends it or i don't care who ends it uh, but allow that system to weed out more candidates it seems to be the more fair way to go when we come back a little bit more news to do uh, and some deeper thinking on some other topics. And again, if you have thoughts on elections and how to make them better, Facebook, Instagram, or uh, what's the other one? Twitter. Just look for me, Corey Truax, or email the show at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. We'll be back in just a moment. Stick with us. Welcome in for the final segment of the Corey Truax Show. Here's what we're going to try to do as fast as we can. Three different stories. One is from Tabidi. Anibuele, he is one of my favorite Christian thinkers, but he has been talking about reparations for slavery here uh, lately, and so I have some thoughts on that. Number two, there's a new story showing what stresses out millennials, and it's funny, so I want to try to do that. And then one quick thought on Robert Mueller and his filed report. Before we get, in any of, get into any of that, one quick reminder. If you would connect to the show on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, that would be highly appreciated. You also won't be disappointed. That gives you content all week long if you'll connect on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, also share the show with others on social media. Tell somebody about it at work. Share it with a great friend. Again, I don't think they'll regret it. It's a good gift. Give the gift of the Corey Act show. Yes, I said it. I have that level of arrogance to say so. All right, here we go. First, Tabidi Anabuele is a deep Christian thinker. He recently said that folks who would oppose, he did it on Twitter, that anyone who would oppose the idea of reparations for the American slavery system, that they are, they're just sad people, they're sinful people, anyone that would uh, oppose such an idea. So I just have some quick thoughts on this. One, the idea of justice for a wrongdoing is a good Christian idea. Where someone was, where a human being, and just a couple hundred years ago, was treated as property, where that injustice and that evil and that sin was committed, yeah, I'm for justice. I am for uh, a person, a, a human being getting the justice they deserve, and that most certainly would be of a property level. That would be monetary. You have stolen my property and my effort. You have stolen my wealth, and I am to be compensated for it. That is a just with clarity, that's a moral position to have. The problem is it does not seem practical. I understand the morality of the reparations, but if we start trying to actually do it, like you actually get in a room and we've decided, we're doing reparations for slavery. What's step one? I would say, well, we got to find the victims of slavery. we got to find their descendants. Uh-oh. How are we going to do that? 
we don't have a great deal of medical records. We, we, we've got a bunch of African-American people in the country who are not direct descendants of slaves. I don't even know how to find them. And then, moreover, then we got to go back and find uh, the people who need to pay the recompense, the people who need to repent for what they did and now pay back what they stole. Now i got to go back and try to find the descendants of slave owners. And if you have some picture of the antebellum, the pre-Civil War South that every white family had slaves, you got the wrong picture. These were rich folks. And I'm sure we probably have decent records of some, but we have a a very narrow exchange of property and, and money here if we could even figure it out, finding direct descendants of both sides of this ledger to make it right. Now, if we could, I'm in. That's justice. Let's do that. I just don't think it's practical. And then moreover, another practical issue is there's no question that if we start going through the records of a slaveholding family in 1720 in Virginia, and we start going through their line, as Ecclesiastes, as Solomon would have predicted, eventually some idiot kid comes along and wastes all the money. And so there's probably some descendants of slave of slaveholders who are living destitute in a trailer park somewhere. And equally, it is almost certainly the case that there are folks in the country who are direct descendants of slaves who are millionaires now. And so I don't even know how to do it. I don't, I'm not ta- calling it a moral or a bad idea. I'm saying it is an impractical idea. And for Tabidi Anabuele, a brother, I believe he's a brother in Christ, to say anyone who would oppose the idea of reparations is basically selfish and sinful, I think you went too far there, man, and you got the wrong idea. we got to move quick here. Number two, things that stress out millennials. Oh, boy. Uh, they find the most stressful thing, by the way. I love this. The most stressful thing is losing their phone or the phone battery dying or the screen breaking. When you put all the things they said about their device, it's the most stressful thing. The number two thing, arguing with their spouse or partner. <laughs> They'd rather argue with the person they love than lose their phone or have it break or have the battery dwindle. This is the things that stress them out. After that, it's losing their wallet or keys, paying bills. So they're actually more stressed out about losing their wallet and keys than paying bills. And when I say they, I do say me. I'm technically the oldest of the millennials. I'm an elder millennial. Uh, Coming in at number six on the list, slow Wi-Fi. Big issue for the millennials and how stressed out they are. They... (laughs) Slow Wi-Fi is ranked above credit card bills and school loan payments. They're more stressed out about the Wi-Fi signal than any of those other big things. And so if you want to go read that survey, I encourage it just because it's fun. It's out there on studyfinds.org, studyfinds.org. I actually go there with some regularity. They just collect all the studies different universities are doing. Um, just Just so you know what comes at the end, number 19 and 20 of stress points for young people in your life. Number 19 is choosing what to wear. Huh, I'll admit, sometimes I struggle with that. It, it gets to me. Like, you know, I, bow tie, long tie, vest. I'm actually, I'm lucky. Uh, I have a roommate who has a history in fashion, and so I can get a, a professional opinion when I need to. Uh, but I don't know that I'm going to stress out about it too much. And the number 20, washing dishes. The 20th most stressful thing for millennials. Final thing for me, I think, for today is this. I almost went back and got the audio because I wanted to be a jerk and play me saying something that was really accurate. But twice in the last six months, I came to this microphone and I said, 
if you're one of my listeners who is counting on Robert Mueller to change the world. Like, you, if you're listening, you know I'm not a huge fan of the President of the United States. I'm not even a little fan of the President of the United States. But the, throughout this entire Robert Mueller Russia thing, I just never believed anything was there. I had a lot of reasons for that. One of them was presumption of innocence. One was just believing the president wasn't sophisticated enough to even come up with such a plan. But there was just no evidence. And until there's evidence, I have trouble believing something without evidence for it. And now it does seem to be the case. As Robert Mueller has filed his report with a recommendation of no more indictments, what I said was going to happen is what's happening. He did an investigation. He found out what we all knew. The president surrounded himself with a lot of seedy, bad people, and none of them colluded with Russia. At least there's no evidence any of them colluded with Russia. And so for those who are emotionally invested in this investigation ending this presidency, I tried to prepare you for the disappointment. So don't blame me if you are devastated by that outcome. I tried to help. Again, if you would be so kind, share the show on all of your social media. Like, review the show. Give it a five-star rating if you would be so kind. We're finished with serious stuff for the week. Let's do sports. Are you ready? As we do, we're going to finish up talking sports with our sports correspondent. His name is Heath Powell. Hello there, sir. Hello. In my estimation, the greatest weekend of sports is the first four days of March Madness. Yeah, I agree. We have that mi- that much basketball over four days. There's yep. nothing like it. It's awesome. And to start on it's that. It's so awesome. Let me interrupt you. Please do. When we were in high school. Yes. Okay, our principal was the coach of the basketball team. So he would let us check out. Now, we'd take our schoolwork with us, but we could check out and go home, watch basketball Thursday and Friday, and then turn our work in on Monday. Now, he knew where we were. He knew what we were doing. We, were, we weren't, you know, we were where we said we would be. Yes. We were watching basketball. We weren't just. Uh, abusing the, the privilege, but I always appreciated that. Even at my high school, uh, I remember there was a TV brought in for 9-11. Yep. The only other time a TV was brought into the classroom, March Madness. March Madness. We would have it on. Why not? Yeah, when I was at Bob Jones, we yes. had a, our history teacher drew up like a six-foot by six-foot uh, bracket and had it on the wall in the classroom, and every you know every day we'd mark off and advance Love the it. winners. It was it was pretty cool. My high school did something similar. That's what this this tournament is a unifying thing. It's one of that Amer- Americana, right? Men, women, sports fans, non sports fans, people fill out brackets. It's just a it's a fun tournament. It's a fun thing. People yeah. that don't even know who the teams are or what it is fill out brackets. They just go by numbers, and they often often do better than I do. That's right. People yeah. who know nothing about sports. I think you can overthink these things. You can. So speaking of the actual tournament, yep. first, to a Liberty Flame graduate. Yes, sir. Congratulations, sir, on a first-round win over Mississippi State. Finally. Isn't that yeah, great? They finally broke through. Because they've been in the tournament. Yeah, they've been. I think this is their fourth time in the tournament. Right. I remember the first time they went was in 93 against the Tar Heels. Yep. They were 16. Tar Heels were one. That wasn't a game, but Liberty was just glad to be there the first time. Yes. Um, but how about all the 12-5 upsets? Was now, it three? It was three. Yeah. There are always one or two. Like that's one of the one of the upsets when you're doing your bracket. You always try to figure out the five twelve because you, you know pick, one of them's gonna lose. Yes, pick you, one twelve. You know one of them's gonna lose. Yes, but only one of the five teams won this year. The so other's crazy. Twelve five uh, matchups. If anyone's curious, Murray State beat Marquette, uh, and then it was number twelve New, New Mexico State's the only one that lost. They lost by one to Auburn. Right. Uh, so they they almost lost. It was almost and, a sweep. Uh, of all the 12s over the 5s. And I actually can't find the other 12, but it was three 12s getting wins. Uh, you want to hear one, two uh, predictions I made that you can make fun of me for? Sure. 
I chose <laughs> Wisconsin to go to the Final Four. They lost in the first round. That's not good. You're, well, that's just like last year when the first 16 over one, when Virginia lost. Yes. Like, a lot of people had Virginia going all the way to the Final Four, and it just didn't work out. That, you know, I, I put this out of my mind. We're talking about 12 fives, and I couldn't think of the other 12 fives. Yeah. It's Wisconsin. It's Wisconsin. They lost to Oregon <laughs> by a gajillion. Right. And they were a Final Four team for me. That's bad. The other one, I had Belmont in the Sweet 16. They lost by two to Maryland in the first round. Right. I, I thought Belmont was going to do well, too. Because they had that one, another shooter, a yeah. Steph-like shooter. I mean, let's just be, I didn't pick them to win. No. I just thought they would do well, yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I, I thought they'd get uh, into the Sweet 16. This is what I like about the tournament. You get all these guys at these, I call them mid-majors. They may not be, but they're not Power 5 conference teams. And, man, they're really good players, just like Harold Arsenault, remember? I do. Weaver, Weaver State. Weaver State? Yeah, yeah, against North Carolina. And you'll never hear from them again, more than likely. Yep. And you haven't seen them all year, but you know who they are. Like the kid from Murray State, oh. uh, Ja Morgan or whatever. Ja, yes, Ja. Yeah, right. J.A. Morant. Morant. Ja Morant. Morant. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. He's just a fantastic basketball player. And before this tournament, I never heard his name. Right. But I Well, his dad went to high school and played basketball with Ray Allen. Oh, wow. So his sister's supposed to be very good too. So that's just a cool little side note. Beyond, I mean, the obvious Duke. When you look around this tournament, have you seen anybody you think matches up well? I mean, is it? It's, what if it's Duke, North Carolina? I don't. See, Duke, uh, Gonzaga, North Carolina, and Virginia. Three ACC teams in the Final Four. We've we've seen it before. If any conference is going to put three into the Final Four, it's yep. the ACC. Yep. In my youth, I feel like there was one Final Four that was. Maryland, Duke, North Carolina, and another team. It probably was. Probably Michigan State or something. And that was back when, uh, what was that Maryland team? Steve Blake? Yeah, Steve Blake. And Juan, Juan Dixon. Juan Dixon. Yep. Yeah. So if anyone's going to do it, it's them. Uh, any thoughts on Wofford, another local team? Who yes. Went out, got a win. Man, no. They, uh, they would round, have, right? Yeah, they won the first round. They could have easily won the second round, you know, but they locked down the shooter. And he he had a rough. I felt bad for him. That was his last game because he was zero and twelve for from three. Ugh. But he's the career leader in NCAA history in That's three incredible. points made. In the second round, they played Kentucky, right? Yeah, they had Kentucky on the ropes. Kentucky won by like what four or five points. I got it in front of me. It's six. Yeah, but they, but it's two free throws at the end to make it six. Yeah, it was six. But Wofford's leading scorer had eight points. Yeah, it's incredible. Uh, it's cool to see that local team do well. Uh, the other- yeah, how about Spartanburg? Wofford's winning. You know, Spartanburg's representing pretty well. Well, Spartanburg's representing because Zion is Well, that's what I'm saying. Plus, I was just waiting for you to say, Zion Williams is from there, you know. He's going to win. They're going to win the tournament. He's going to be the MVP of it. Probably. Because there's nobody like that. I'll be honest with you, though. I think Gonzaga may give Duke some fits. Might have the best uh, best matchup. Yeah, because they've got the big guys who are super athletic, and you know, just like Duke does. Uh, another big upset of the tournament uh, was UC Irvine taking down Kansas State. Yeah, that was awesome. The Anteaters. Yeah. That's the mascot? <laughs> I had no idea. Uh, which does set up a um, a, se- a Sweet 16 matchup. I'm almost positive. No, it's Oh, yeah. It's a round of 32 matchup between Oregon and UC Irvine. I yep. love when round of 32s yeah, I do too. have double-digit seeds playing each other. I like when double-digit seeds get through to the Sweet 16. I just like it. I don't care if people like it. I don't like seeing the Blue Buds and the Power teams all crush the other guys. Or we like the mix. I like it because it's really only in basketball yeah. that this happens. Sometimes mm-hmm. in baseball, because baseball's a weird game anyway. Yeah. It hardly ever happens. I mean, people always go, well, Appalachian State, Michigan. Appalachian State had like three national championships with that team. Yes. On their level. It's not like they stunk. This is um, the sport that you only play You only play one time. That's right. You, when you're playing in the NBA, in the MLB, 
it's hard for a coach to ever say, yeah, we're going to beat this team four times. Yeah. But a coach can go to his team and say, on one day. We only need one more shot than they make. Exactly. That's what I love about this tournament. The yeah. stakes are super high. And if you're a Duke, North Carolina, Michigan, you know, Gonzaga, the pressure is really on you. Yes. There's no pressure on UC Irvine because yeah. they probably shouldn't be here anyways. Well, yes. And as, when I watched <laughs> This little... is their chance to slay Goliath. That's what I like. Exactly. When I saw that Liberty game against – it was Mississippi State, right? It was Mississippi State, yeah. That's what it felt like. Yeah. I felt like Liberty was having fun. They were. And there was a pressure. Because there's no pressure on Liberty. If they yeah. lose, well, they should have. They were supposed to lose. Yes. If Mississippi State loses, well, you got to be by Liberty. Well, where's Liberty? I don't know. Somewhere in West Virginia. Yes. You know, it's one of those things. And that, that that makes these tournaments fun, especially with the, the parody of basketball, the AAU stuff and all the stuff. These guys that sometimes get overlooked, you get to see their day in uh, the day in the sunshine. Some yeah. coaches come out of this. A couple years ago, it was with Virginia Commonwealth. Yeah, VCU. Sh- yeah, Shaka Smart came but out of that. But what about Butler going to the finals two years in a row? And, and then that Gordon Hayward. Uh, who was ever that guy's name? He coached for the Celtics now. I remember his name. Yeah, because Gordon Hayward's with the Celtics too. Yes. His coach. This. Brad. Brad Stevens. Uh, Am I right? Yeah, I think so. I think it's Brad Stevens. It's Brad Something it, last name. I think yeah, it is Stevens. It's, it's generic name, generic name. Right. Brad and Stevens. Just look up a stereotypical white guy name there. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, you know, his name is Brad Bradenson. Yeah. Steve Stevenson. Whatever his name is. Okay. So it's we're not one of those rules where you don't hire a guy with two first names. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> last of the thing before we call it sports for the week. Going in, well, for the rest of this tournament, we both went in, I think, thinking Duke would win it. Yep. Anything change your mind over the first weekend? Uh, not really. No. They're going to, someone will give them a push, I hope. Now, I'm not saying that Duke won't have, you know, one of those scare games. Sure. Because, I mean, but if Duke's on their own. But I do think North Carolina can give them fits. I think Gonzaga can give them fits. Um, Probably Virginia, just because Virginia likes to hold the ball and play good defense and you can't score because you don't have the the possessions. Uh, Basically, the ACC teams and Gonzaga are the ones that I see giving Duke fits, if they even make it that far. Yeah. Assuming they don't get upset by someone else. Sure, along the way. All right, we'll come back next week, or maybe the week after, and preview like the the final bit of this tournament. And then NBA playoffs will start right after that. Uh, So thanks for coming in and talking sports. I appreciate it. We'll be back with another new edition of the show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.